0: I'm Caleb Zachron, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies. Today I'm speaking with Micah Gottlieb, associate professor of Jewish thought at NYU. Micah is the recipient of the AHA's Dorothy Rosenberg Prize in the History of Jewish Diaspora for the book we'll be discussing today, The Jewish Reformation, Bible Translation and Middle-Class German Judaism as Spiritual Enterprise. Micah, thank you for joining me today.
1: pleasure to be here.
0: Of course. Before getting into the book, I was just wondering if you could tell me a little about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um, I'm originally Canadian, Uh, kind of moved to America about 30, 20 years ago. Um, but I'm originally from Montreal and, um, I was raised Jewish in a middle class, uh, Jewish, Jewish family. Uh, when I was in high school, I got very interested in questions. Related to religion and to philosophy, uh, I was, you know, raised in a kind of liberal, um, observant family, uh, affiliated with, kind of paradoxically called the conservative movement, which is actually one of the liberal movements in Judaism. Um, but uh, when as I got into high school, I got kind of got more interested in um, exploring more deeply questions of religion and questions of philosophy, and I began studying. Talmud on my own and, um, you know, thinking about philosophical questions. And then, uh, after high school, I went to, uh, to Israel. I studied at Hebrew university, I studied Jewish thought philosophy. Uh, I studied, I went to a, a yeshiva and I, I, I studied Talmud there. Um, and then went back, went to McGill did uh, an undergraduate degree in philosophy, and then a PhD in philosophy at Indiana University. Um, And again, my my focus was on questions of faith versus reason. And my first book was called Faith and Freedom, uh, Moses Mendelssohn's Theological-Political Thought. And what I really was kind of exploring was an enlightenment debate between a Jewish thinker, Moses Mendelssohn, an enlightened Jewish thinker, and a kind of Christian critic of enlightenment, uh, Friedrich Heinrich Jacobi. And they took these kind of opposite stances on the faith reason debate where Mendelssohn was saying that faith and reason are compatible. And Jacobi was saying, you have to choose between one or the other. They're not compatible. Um, and I was kind of interested in exploring how does one's stance on the faith reason debate, um, spill over into or relate to one's stances on, politi- on politics, um, on the, on what form of government is best. Um, on kind of broadly speaking questions of kind of conservative versus more liberal um, political positions. So that was kind of the focus of that book.
0: Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Moses Mendelssohn, who he was and why you find him so fascinating?
1: Absolutely. So Moses Mendelssohn was born in 1729 uh, born in a German, uh, a German state called Dessau. There was no Germany, united Germany, until 1871, um, and there were just kind of different German states, 300 German states. He was born into a, a small rural Germ- German state, um, and he's kind of a, he's kind of at the borderline between modernity, enlightenment, and um, pre-modernity, and he was kind of born in this very interesting. Period um, in the middle of the 18th century when the Enlightenment is starting to grow in Germany and gain force. But pre modern forms of religion, of pietism, of Judaism, um, they remain very, very strong. So he was uh, raised in an environment where he had no secular education, he just studied Talmud from a young age, which was the traditional Ashkenazic Jewish curriculum. Um, But he eventually, his his rabbi left Dessau for the metropolis of Berlin, which was a hub of enlightenment and uh, free thinking and more liberal thinking. And there was all sorts of different people in. It was a very cosmopolitan city. And Moses Mendelssohn originally went there to study uh, with his teacher and to study in his yeshiva. But he quickly got exposed to these enlightened currents. And he kind of taught himself the languages he needed to know to engage these works, which included German. He didn't know German. He was just raised with Yiddish. Um, And then he taught himself French and English and Latin and Greek. And he did all this by the time he was 20. And he met, famously met a Christian uh, thinker, young Christian thinker who was his age, named Lessing, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. And they formed this friendship, reportedly over a game of chess. They were introduced by a common acquaintance. And then Mendelssohn kind of rose in the um, German and Enlightened Republic of Letters, and he became one of the most famous Enlightened philosophers. Famously in 1763, he wrote a prize essay, which, uh, which was um, won first place from the Berlin Academy of Sciences, and Kant's essay famously came second. And then he wrote these kind of best-selling books on Enlightenment um, and on Enlightenment philosophy, but at the same time, he also remained loyal to Judaism, and he engaged Jewish texts. And he famously wrote a um, the first German Jewish Bible translation, and that kind of precipitated a whole series of Bible translations, which was uh, kind of what the subject of the book was.
0: So the book is titled uh, "The Jewish Reformation," uh, and you know I'm sure people uh, listening to this are probably you know listening on the New Books in Jewish Studies channel probably very familiar with Jewish Reformation. But for those who aren't familiar, can you tell us a little bit about what the Jewish Reformation is?
1: Sure. I don't know how familiar people are with the term Jewish Reformation. It's not a very common term. Much more commonly, people will sometimes speak of Reform Judaism, which is one sect of Judaism which arose in the 19th century. Um, But I'm using the term Jewish Reformation differently than that. Uh, And so the Jewish Reformation, you know, kind of similar to the Protestant Reformation, is a way of rethinking religion of what these thinkers thought of establishing religion, in this case, Judaism, um, on its proper basis, returning it to its pure core. Uh, And just as in the Protestant Reformation, the way in which this was done at the center of this was Luther's Bible translation, So these German Jewish thinkers used Bible translation to establish this, you know, modern view of Judaism. And specifically, I argue that it was um, a way of establishing a middle class bourgeois vision of Judaism. And so when people study the, the 19th century, they often speak about differences between and arguments and polemics between reform Judaism, conservative, which in Germany was called positive historical Judaism orthodoxy neo-orthodoxy and they kind of see them as antagonists but what i argue in this book is you could really see them as part of a common project which is creating a bourgeois german judaism and middle class or bourgeois german judaism i'm using those terms kind of entertain interchangeably and um and that they use bible translation to this end
0: in your book you, you focus on Three important translations. You you discuss other translations and, and other notions too, but in particular, you focus on Mendelssohn's 70, 1783 translation, uh, l- later Leopold Sons's, uh eighteen thirty eight translation, and Samson Raphael Hirsch's eighteen seventy eight translation. So, uh, without you know uh, spending too much time on on each one, obviously that's uh, a lot to, to ask. I was just wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of an introduction into. You know what the different uh, approaches to translation that they took, and
1: why it is that you focus on on these three. Right. Okay. Sure. So each of the the reason why I focus on these three is because each of these figures was an intellectual and even and also communal leader of one of the modern versions of Judaism. So Moses Mendelssohn was the most important figure in the Haskalah or the Jewish Enlightenment. Leopold Soons was a very early reform um, thinker, preacher, um, and he, but he eventually uh, became the founder of the historical approach to Judaism, which, which is really essentially the academic study of Judaism, which is called Wissenschaft des Judentum. So Jewish studies, you know, which is I te- teach in the Department of Jewish Studies, we owe our origin to Leopold, to Leopold Soons. He founded this field. Um, and Samson Raphael Hirsch was the founder of Neo Orthodoxy, which, you know, have, bears an important affinity to kind of modern Orthodox versions of Judaism, but also was in in certain respects a um, an important figure for elements of Ultra Orthodoxy. So he's a kind of very interesting figure that way. Um, and what I argue is each of them tried to ground their vision of bourgeois German Judaism. Through their Bible translation. So, one thing that Moses Mendelssohn did was, you know, he tried to show uh, how the Bible is a great literary work, right? Mendelssohn was a philosopher, he was someone who was a metaphysician. But what people know less about him was that he was also one of the impor- mo- most important thinkers in aesthetics. He was also a literary critic. And he wanted to show the harmony between Judaism and you know, kind of the best of Western civilization, Western knowledge, Western culture. And part of the way he did that was by showing that actually the Bible was this great literary text. And he tried to show how um, it, you could find all these um, very important literary techniques being used by the Bible. And he tried to show that in, in his translation. In the translation, he also tried to kind of embed, show how the Bible um, fits together with enlightened ethics, uh, with a kind of universalism. And he all did, the, did this through the translation in a very kind of interesting way. And so Leopold Suns, um, he, what he did in his Bible translation is he tried to also bring a historical perspective to it and show how um, and kind of use history to ground the Bible not biblical criticism, not trying to use history to kind of undermine the Bible's claims, but actually to use history to illuminate the Bible and to kind of ground it for, um, for 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 modern Jews. His Bible wasn't an academic Bible. It was a communal Bible. It was for use, you know, and as was Mendelssohn's and as was Hirsch's. And Hirsch's Bible, again, it was um, trying to elaborate a bourgeois middle-class version of orthodoxy which is grounded on this kind of submission to god's will but he identified god's will with a kind of ethical imperative that was universal Um, and he kind of also uses his bible translation to combat historical approaches that he saw as undermining the authority of the bible and the authority of judaism and the difference between those three translations was that Mendelssohn and Sunds were both trying to create Bibles that would create a new consensus among Jews that would be create a one vision of bourgeois German Judaism. And by the time you get to Hirsch, he realizes there cannot be a single vision of bourgeois ju- German Judaism, or modern ju- or modern or middle class Judaism, and his Bible is specifically aimed to ground a um, orthodox vision of um, middle-class German Judaism, and he doesn't expect it's going to be accepted by reform or um, conservative or other liberal Jews. So this kind of, I argue, this kind of represents a kind of fragmenting of German Judaism, that until this point, German Jews were trying to create a unified vision of of modern Judaism. And when it comes, by the time you come to Samson Raphael Hirsch, they realize, no, there's going to be multiple versions of it. What do
0: you see as the the overall importance of German-Jewish Bible translation for the modernization of Judaism in this time?
1: Right. So, you know, many scholars have kind of treated Bible translation as a kind of interesting literary phenomenon, um, you know, or they've treated it as, you know, from the perspective of of biblical studies to understand the kind of history, of the development of biblical studies. But I think that what you see in the Bible translation is an attempt to anchor visions of Judaism and what I call spiritual visions of Judaism. So you have these thinkers, these bourgeois thinkers, these middle class thinkers who are who are developing um, this these kind of novel conceptions of Judaism, which they see as the really the true ancient conceptions of Judaism. Um, but you know, you can write a kind of philosophical treatise, or you can write an, a theological essay. But what these thinkers realize is that if you really want to disseminate religious ideas, religious ideologies, you should, you should do it through the Bible, because the Bible is an essential part of Jewish education. It's, a, it's also an essential part of Jewish uh, liturgical life. The Bible is read every week in the synagogue, and they, these, these, these writers were creating these Bible translations to be used in the synagogue, in the schools. And so this was a kind of way of disseminating their visions. And, you know, almost a kind of way of publicizing or inculcating or really educating the public and enacting a kind of transformation in the collective Jewish consciousness.
0: You discuss uh, other scholars who who have commentated on uh, German Jewish Bible translation, uh, including David Sorkin, who who blurbs it. I was wondering if you could talk about, um, you know, his interpretations or some other scholarly interpretations and uh, where, what you sort of think your uh, perspective, uh, you know, what similarities your perspective shares with, with, you know, someone like Sorkin's tran- uh, interpretations and also maybe differences, things that uh, you think that this book was, was adding.
1: Yeah. Well, with David Sorkin, um, you know, and I'm a great admirer of his work and he did kind of really pioneering work on Moses Mendelssohn's Bible translation uh, in a book that appeared in 1996. And he also recently published a translation of Mendelssohn's, um, Bible commentary and writings on the Bible together with together with Edward Breuer. And these are kind of wonderful resources. And, um, but what I would say is I, I don't have a great necessarily, uh, you know, a great bone to pick with, uh, with these scholars who are, you know, who are fantastic scholars. Um, but what I would kind of like to emphasize is my disagreement with the way many scholars of German Judaism have interpreted the phenomenon of um, Jewish approaches to the Bible and specifically, and more specifically, Jewish approaches to religion um, and reformation of religion and that is that um, scholars have often seen this in very functional terms. right? They've seen the Bible, and not just the Bible, but Jewish religious reformation, as a socioeconomic project. It was a project of how German Jews brought themselves into the middle class, how they rise, they rose socially. And religion was a tool which was used for that. It made Jews more acceptable to... Middle class Protestants, right? It elevated their status. They used the Bible to show, oh, Jews aren't foreign. Jews share a common background with Protestants because they share the Old Testament, and this was a way of kind of gaining um, acceptance within, um, you know, you know, in, in society. And uh, you know, and a scholar such as Simon Lessig, who's a wonderful scholar, you know, said, look, we see at the end of the nineteenth century, Jews have risen incredibly economically from a point in the early 19th century where the majority of them were very poor and you know had very, very few rights to the end of the 19th century where they have not full equal rights but many, many more rights where they've risen economically, socially and many more professions. And she says the reformation of religion was critical to that. And where I take exception with that, I don't deny there's truth to that, but I think that if you look at religion and especially of this middle-class or bourgeois religion in these lenses, through this lens, you really distort it. Because yes, these writers saw economic advancement. They saw gaining social status as important in society. But they always thought that that was subservient to the true mission of Judaism, which was the development of a moral character something internal, not an external good that you get, not something like money or prestige or a job, but an internal development where you where you um, develop yourself intellectually, you develop your aesthetic sense, but most importantly, you develop your moral sense, and that you use this to benefit society. You try to morally improve society. And that's what they thought Judaism was really about. And they thought that if you just, you know, religion shouldn't be a servant of, economics uh, or social advancement, social advancement and economics are tools to spread this deeper religious and moral message. And I think that's the critical point that I'm really focusing on in this book. And I think that a lot of German Judaism, um, and this bourgeois German Judaism has been criticized, because it seemed to be religiously shallow, or it seemed to be, um, you know, just, you know, only concerned with, you know, material well being material advancement, and that's kind of been criticized or that's been praised, as, as in the case of certain historians. But I think that's a complete misreading of this phenomenon. And that's why the subtitle of the book is Middle Class German Judaism as Spiritual Enterprise. And I think that element of it and taking that seriously is something that many historians um, have kind of missed.
0: Why do you think it is that, that historians have missed this? or Because uh, it seems to me like what you're suggesting is that they have completely misinterpreted. Uh, what this sort of whole whole project of of german jewish uh, reform was about if if it's about spiritual enterprise as opposed to material uh,
1: yeah. betterment,
0: uh, do you think that there's a reason that that they've come to this interpretation that you see as as wrong?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very kind of deep question. I think that's uh, i think, uh, I think that's that's a very deep question, the question of why that's the case. but I think one of the reasons at least is that within I think a lot of the humanities and in history specifically, you really have the ascent and almost the prevalence of um, a kind of Foucauldian way method of analysis. In a way, it's very kind of common to try to 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 see human culture through the lens of power relations, right? And the idea is that power relations, right, are really about kind of my selfish well-being. Right. What I can get for myself and often it's material things. It's very connected to kind of money and social status. And and I think that that's become almost like a dogma. And so anything else, if if someone's talking about religion or they're talking about some kind of spiritual matter, well, that must be, you know, a mask for their true interest, because we know what people are really motivated by what people really want is power and domination and status. Um, And I think when you actually look at this phenomenon, at these texts, um, I think it looks very differently. I mean, I think also with some German scholars, there's a way in which um, they're kind of looking at it, at, at, at these texts, really as observers who are, you know, don't have a kind of connection with this a lived expression of this um, middle class of this bourgeois Judaism. And I think that when you kind of look at it that way, you know, from, uh, from, from, if you look at it in isolation from the lived expression of this um, of this kind of tradition, then again, it's, you know, very natural to interpret it in terms of categories that are familiar. And especially in history, this is you know, kind of going to be power relations.
0: You talked about this a little bit before, but just the relationship between German Jews and their uh, Protestant neighbors. Uh, So, you know, do you see, uh, can you just talk a little bit about the the relationship between Jews and the broader Protestant culture? Um, And yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very fraught question, (laughs) right? Because I mean, Jews on the one hand, you know, Jews suffered a lot of, you know, discrimination in the in the, in the Protestant culture. There's many, um, you know, you have, you know, by the end of the 19th century, we start, you know, talking about anti-Semitism, but you have this tremendous anti-Judaism, which German Jews face. Um, Moses Mendelssohn, you know, famously said, you know, in the Enlightenment, this kind of anti-Judaism didn't disappear at all it just got put in secular terms, right? Previously, the Jews were the ones who poisoned the wells or they cr- criticized Jesus or, I mean, they killed Jesus and they, you know, just, um, you know, were Like old, old. Yeah, historic. old, old trope, oh theological Christian tropes. She says, but now, or they were just so stupid because they couldn't recognize the truth of Jesus's, um, you know, uh, of the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and they were just willfully ignorant of it. Um, and then he says, but in, in, in enlightened times, we can't. that was no longer acceptable to talk in those terms. So instead, Jews were seen as backward. They were seen as dishonest. They were seen as very hateful about Christians. And so they were ineligible to be part of a kind of enlightened society, even though really enlightened society should have been extended equally to everyone in theory. But Jews, because Jews were so asocial, were so... Um, you know, were so hateful and backward and ignorant, then they couldn't kind of participate in this. So that's kind of one side of Protestantism. On the other side, there's a real, um, many, I think German Jews have a real um, admiration for the development of, of the sciences and the arts and culture in, um, in Protestant society. Um, so when they kind of, they come at this and they kind of see these kind of two sides of Protestantism and kind of, but I what I also find very interesting is that you know they're not completely dismissive of the critiques of Judaism. They're not, of course, they defend Jews. Moses Mendelssohn famously, you know, wrote a very famous treatise, um, you know, arguing for for Jewish civil rights. Or he had it translated, and he also um, kind of commented on it. And Tsunz was a Democrat, was a radical Democrat, and he was. Arguing for Jewish civil rights, and Hirsch was also—he uh, was involved with the 1848 revolution, supporting them, and so all these thinkers were passionate advocates for Jews. But at the same time, they didn't completely dismiss criticisms of Jews and Judaism that they saw as legitimate. They weren't out to defend Jews and Judaism at all costs. So, for instance, they think that they—they they thought that there was a kind of lack of attention and—and and even dismissal of secular education, non-Jewish knowledge. Um, And they saw this as, and they saw that there were Jews who were, you know, harboring hateful attitudes towards Christians. They said that, that there was some truth to that. So part of this project of Jewish reformation isn't just, isn't just kind of propagandizing for Judaism, but it's also affecting a change in Judaism that they saw as necessary not to appease their Christian neighbors, But because they, or their Protestant neighbors, but because they saw this as the true fulfillment of Judaism, they thought if you harbor a view that you see Jews as superior or you don't care about Christians, how could you be a true Jew? The the, the true spiritual element of Judaism involves treating everyone with love and compassion. If you don't understand how secular knowledge can enhance one's um, devotion to, to the Torah, to ethics, Um, then you've lost something really critical, something really important. So, again, I think it's wrong to see this, as some writers have seen, this as a kind of, well, this this reformation of Judaism was just trying to appease the Christians or something like that, or it was just to get more civil rights for themselves. No, it was because they saw this as a real spiritual necessity for for Judaism to fulfill its, its true purpose which is the advancement of, of human flourishing, happiness, and freedom.
0: So, yeah. Following up on that, um, you, 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 touched on, on how they, they conceived of a, of a proper Jewish education, obviously, you know, uh, all Jews would probably agree that, you know, Torah study is central to a Jewish education. Um, but is, is there a way that these, these translators conceived of a Jewish education that extended beyond the Torah? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe a different way of also thinking about how Torah study can can occur?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, and that's a kind of critical theme. And it begins in the 18th century with Moses Mendelssohn's um, contemporary and associate, Naftali Hertz Vesely, who published this very kind of controversial treatise in Hebrew called De Shalom Ve'emet, words of um, peace and truth, in which he argues for a complete overhauling of Jewish education. Um, and part of what he's arguing is that really at the center of Jewish education had been, first of all, Jewish education had centered really only on male Jewish education, formal, Um, and formal Jewish education, and really what it centered on was the study of the Talmud, Uh, and study of the Talmud not just as a, you know, kind of literary text or even a religious text, but it's really to this kind of what he saw as this almost like scholastic study of it, and what Wesley was arguing is that, no, that's not a proper approach to education. That actually deviates from what actually the rabbis in the Talmud argued. And they argued, no, the basis of Jewish education should be the Bible. Why was the Bible so important? Because the Talmuders are these kind of legal arguments. Um, you know, what happens if a cow gore someone? And how, And this is all, you know, important stuff. But what you really need to um, create true, to really embody the true mission of judaism and and spirit of judaism is you have to understand judaism in a kind of more grand terms you need to understand how does judaism fit into world history how does judaism you know how did this you know people develop what's the nature of these laws and he thinks that by reading the bible which is a kind of narrative historical account that gives one a much greater sense and appreciation for why one must why doing these things is important so the bible was supposed to be the center. Some people have said, well, these musculic writers or these Reformation writers thought that the Talmud wasn't important. That's not true at all. They thought the Talmud was very important. They thought that, but the Talmud was a kind of way of illuminating elements of the Bible. It wasn't supposed to be the center of the education. They thought, And that's not what the rabbis in the Talmud thought. That's not what the medieval Sephardic tradition, which they looked to, um, had taught. Um, and but alongside that, we all, they also advocated the importance of secular education. Right. So Wesley famously came up with this idea that there's two Torahs. He said there's a Torah of man, which kind of teaches one how to, you know, um, it teaches secular knowledge. It teaches knowledge, which is kind of universal knowledge. Um, it includes ethical knowledge. Um, and then there's the Torah of God, which is the laws of the Torah and the vision that's found in the Torah. And he says these two things have to be kind of complementary because the purpose of the Torah isn't to create a nation of people who are just kind of standing apart from society in isolated devotion to their God, it's to, to actualize human nature on its um, most profound level. So for Wesley and for many of these thinkers, the true actualization of human nature is involves the development of an ethical character. Right. And that's a universal goal. And the Torah is simply, it's another means of helping people do that. Right. So you need to, these two kind of sets of knowledge, this kind of secular knowledge, or what he calls the uh, human knowledge and divine knowledge, these things are kind of completely complementary, and that must be reflected in the education. Um, and then the one thing I would say, one, well, the one last thing I would say is that, you know, Moses Mendelssohn and Wesley didn't say that much about, you know, female Jewish education, but that becomes very, very critical. Um, and increasingly, you see through the 19th century this really attempt to, um, to develop female Jewish education and to put female and male Jewish education on an equal plane. They don't really accomplish that um, in practice, but that you see that more and more. That's the goal. Um, so the idea is that everyone has to be, has to be educated.
0: Without uh, asking you to venture too much into you know the the fraught uh, world of today, um, so you know feel free to answer this however you'd like. Uh, you know I, I think that there's a lot of interesting uh, things to think about. As you know, I, I'm I'm Jewish, and to think about you know cont- the the issues of contemporary Judaism and how um, you know the current state of of the Jewish religion is so it seems very fractured. So many different. Yeah. Uh, ways that people practice judaism um to, you know in in different places uh and i was wondering if just over the course of doing your research and learning about this if it helped you think about current jewish issues today differently
1: yeah i mean that's a you know i think that's you know that's i mean yeah that's an interesting question i mean i think what you in in the 18th century and even the 19th century, you you have a um, you know you have a battle. These Reformation writers, Jewish Reformation writers, are opposing what they see as visions of Judaism that are articulations of Judaism that are more kind of narrow or exclusivistic. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, they're challenging um, people who are sort of saying, well, Judaism has nothing to say, right? Judaism has nothing to say to me, right? Judaism is just a relic. It is, is, is kind of completely irrelevant. Um, and they're challenging kind of both sides of that. And I think today we're kind of in a not such a very different world in the sense that, you know, this kind of liberal religion um, and you see this not just in Judaism, but in kind of mainline Protestantism and is, is really kind of under assault and is really kind of declining in a, you know, in many ways. The, the number of mainline Protestant churches and, you know, uh, conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism, these are all kind of facing challenges. And I think it's, again, from both sides, from there's the, the right side, which is saying, no, Judaism should be more exclusivist. You know, Jews and you've kind of you know big rise in Hasidic communities and ultra-orthodoxy, and you also have kind of exclusivistic visions of Judaism um, that on the rise as you kind of see in Israel. And then of course you have a growing number of people who are nuns or just affiliating. And so I think this the the you know the the the, the issues are. You know, obviously, there's important differences, but there's also kind of similarities today. And I, but I think understanding what the vision of these writers was, and what they saw, why they saw um, a kind of middle class Judaism as important, and what it amounted to, and what were the components of it, um, I think this you know can be helpful.
0: I, I think it, it definitely you know that the level of depth in this book is is pretty astounding. It's very clear uh, that. You, you uh, wrote it with, with great care. Uh, well, Micah, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books
1: Network. It was great to have you. Yeah, pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you for your questions.